Vancouver, and welcome to Canucks Talk. I'm Thomas Drance, flying solo today. Not sure where Jamie's at. No, I'm just kidding. Jamie's looking after some family stuff. He'll be back with us Monday. Today, you've got me, and me only, but we've got a great show lined up for you. Dave Nonis, he'll join us at 1230, so stay tuned for that. In the noon hour, former Canucks and Toronto Maple Leafs assistant general manager Dave Nonis will join us. We'll talk salary cap, and of course, we will talk Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, Canucks Talk, of course, is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, keeping you at the top of your game. Now found together at DLEAMC.com. Check out the fine folks at Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Of course, we're coming to you live from the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics is Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. Now, as you know, when I'm flying solo, and I'm only doing one segment by myself, because I've got Dave Nonis coming, 1230, and then I've got Dmitry Filipovich, pinch-hitting, joining us for the final hour uh, for, for two segments from one to 2 p.m. Uh, but for the first segment anyway, I am going to need your help. I'm going to need you to send in your questions, your feedback, your criticisms, your mean trolley jokes, whatever. You can do that at the Dunbar Lumber text line 650-650. Uh, Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or at Arbutus in Vancouver or or visit online at DunbarLumber.com. Calm. All right. You know what's sad to me? Today, there's only one game on the NHL calendar. And I feel like this is the first time since Christmas that I sort of looked at the NHL calendar and been like, oh, no, only one hockey game for me to sink my teeth into this evening. But it's a sign that unlike what the Starks say, summer is coming. Summer is coming. The offseason is approaching. It's nearly upon us. And that means less hockey. The games will be high stakes. We'll have more time to ramp up and anticipate them, but we're in it now, right? We're getting close to that point in the NHL season where, oh boy, we're not going to have a lot of hockey. And then eventually we're going to be looking forward to September and like welcoming preseason games like, like they're an oasis in the desert. Sad to me. Honestly, it's sad to me. And yet, sort of exciting, I think, if you're Canucks fans, specifically if you're the Canucks, because we're not looking forward to any Canucks playoff games anyway. The sooner we get to the offseason, the sooner we get news, the sooner we can get past the hump of being like, what can they do considering their cap situation? The, the off-season speculative stasis that we live in until mid-June. Once the cup is awarded, it is a sprint to July 1st. Two weeks, the busiest two weeks of the hockey news calendar. It's coming. It's coming. It's real close now. We're only like five and a half weeks out. And, and obviously the first event that we're all waiting for, that we're all looking for, is the NHL Draft Lottery. And the NHL Draft Lottery is on Monday, so we've only got two more shows before the NHL Draft Lottery will be upon us. And unfortunately, I don't know that we've really been focused too much on it, right? Part of what happened toward the end of the season is the Canucks rode Demko like they were chasing a wild card spot or a division crown. 
as they played Quinn Hughes more than any other player in the NHL is both Pedersen and Miller played top 15 ice time among all NHL forwards down the stretch of a lost season is they played their way sort of out of top lottery odds and, and in fact moved down an additional four spots on the very final day of the of the year the very final day of the regular season the Canucks went and, and sort of sealed their position behind all of Washington, Detroit, St. Louis. Basically a worst-case scenario. On Monday, the Canucks will have three a 3% chance at getting Connor Bedard. Most likely, they're, they're picking 11th. 79.9% odds per tankathon that the Canucks will pick outside the top 10. And in fact, those odds are even greater because there's also a 13.4% chance that the Canucks pick 12th. And if you're a Canucks fan, you know what that means. <laughs> no one falls down the draft order at a lottery like the Vancouver Canucks. They're the champions of losing draft lotteries. 3% chance of one, 3.2% chance of two, 79.9% chance of 11, 13.4% chance of 12. Within the industry anyway, there's an increasing belief that the Canucks are going to prioritize taking a defenseman. And that's going to be a really tough spot to be in because Reinbacher, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. He's a big defenseman, played in the Austrian League, right-handed, fits all of the bona fides that you'd want the Canucks to go take. And people really like him. This is not just a one-dimensional right-handed defense prospect and oh he's he's large too so he's gonna go higher than he should if you're a defenseman and you're right-handed like add plus five <laughs> to where you'll actually be selected in the draft right like that's catnip so hard to find right-handed defensemen so expensive to find right-handed defensemen if you don't believe me just look at the philip Peronic trade and yet there's an increasing sense that he might be gone. Like, it's not just that the Canucks played themselves, you know, out of the 6% Connor Bedard odds that the Washington Capitals won. It's that they probably played themselves out of range for some of the most interesting fallers or potential fallers in this draft class, right? So Matt, um, Matt Vemichkov obviously is, is sort of one of the top two most talented players in this class. He's going to fall. He's not going one, two, or three. We'll see where he ends up. There's a lot of risks there, a lot of red flags. There's a really tricky contract situation. The Russian factor has returned in the wake of the war in Ukraine in terms of really impacting how players are viewing this. He could fall, but no one thinks he's fallen past the Washington Capitals. <laughs> right? Reinbacher, he could fall. Well, he could rise. I mean, realistically, he wasn't a consensus top 10 pick four months ago. But a lot of people think he's going in the top 10. There's a lot of teams that like him a lot, including the Vancouver Canucks. They they may be out of range there. Uh, Dalibor Dvorsky, big, big Slovakian center. He's played his way up the draft board with a scintillating performance at the U18s. A and where you might end up, particularly if Reinbacher's off the board from a Vancouver perspective is with no defensemen that really warrant being selected 11th overall, certainly no right-handed defensemen that warrant being selected 11th overall, and most 
of your Will Smith, Dvorsky, Mitchkov, like the high value risers, the the class of guys who could fall but would have gone first overall a year ago, they're, they're probably gone too. They're probably going in the top 10. It's a tough spot. It's going to be a tough spot for the Canucks to be in if they do not win the lottery. And in the past, when the Canucks have lost these draft lotteries, it's been like, man, that is bad luck. This time, the club made their own luck. This time, it's on them. It's on them for pursuing this in such a unique way relative to every other team in the NHL. You hope, you hope for a break in the lottery odds because that kid at the top of it, great article up on Connor Bedard, his family, his grandfather, the loss in his life, what he's overcome by my colleague Dan Robson. I highly recommend you go check that out at theathletic.com slash NHL. Fabulous piece. Great person. Incredible player. He's going one with a bullet. And, you know, we haven't talked a lot about what do the Canucks do if they're two or three, but there's a real interesting conversation to be had there. Adam Fantilli is going to go two, I think. But make no mistake, there are teams that would take Leo Carlson there. A lot of your mileage, and we'll talk to Jason Bukala about this when we have him on the show next week. A lot of your mileage on Fantilli versus Carlson depends on how you evaluate the likelihood that either guy sticks at center versus moving to the wing. There are teams that see Fantilli as not necessarily a slam dunk will be a center guy. And there are teams that think that Leo Carlson can play center. And for those teams, there's a real conversation. Fantilli or Carlson. Like, that's a real conversation that, that teams are going to have, and especially the team that wins the second drawing on Draft Lottery Day. Really curious to see how this one pans out, because the thing about Adam Fantilli, and, and make no mistake, like, there's Canucks fans, I'm sure, who are so obsessed with the prospect of the Lynn Valley scoring phenom playing for the team that there'd be, like, some sense of disappointment if the team was uh, to, to land it too. There is no disappointment there, right? Like both of these guys are outrageously good. And 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 Fantilli's case, you're talking about a guy, one of the best Div 1 um, freshman scorers in the history of the sport, probably the fastest single skater in the draft, six foot two, you know, absolute like NHL ready size, incredible athlete. And, and again, where this conversation, I think, becomes fascinating, especially at the top of the draft order is for all of Fantilli's physical gifts, Carlson, who's not necessarily as physically advanced, is seen by some as the higher upside player because he's the brain. He's the guy with the hockey IQ. He, he's got that, potentially anyway, next level awareness, both sides of the puck, that especially if he can play at center, you're, you're starting to drop some pretty outrageous comps in, in terms of play style, right? Uh, I mean, I've heard, I've heard some some evaluators who compare him to Kopitar. <laughs> I mean, that's not, you know, me doing it. That's not a media guy doing it for clicks. I'm saying like real people who know what they're doing, not me. <laughs> Dropping comps like that. The draft lottery comes first, right? The draft lottery comes first, but then we are into a really fascinating stretch for the club. Um, not, not a ton. I, I'd expect it'll be relatively slow going in terms of the steady flow of Canucks news from the draft lottery on until the cup is awarded and either on June 15th or, or 
48 hours after the cup is awarded, whichever comes first, the buyout window will open. And that's sort of one of the first big movers in the NHL um, offseason, right? The buyout window will open. And the team has been pretty clear that their preference, preference, is not to execute a buyout on any of their standard player contracts. That's consistent with Canucks history. This team doesn't typically go for buyouts um, unless it's an absolute last resort. We've seen it happen with Vertanen, with Braden Holtby. Um, you know, obviously the club used both of their compliance buyouts. Like, we've seen it on occasion. But typically speaking, the Vancouver Canucks are hugely reluctant to go down the buyout route, even when they've had contracts like Sven Berchi, right? Like, contracts that where the guy basically isn't an NHL player anymore. Even when the impact of doing a buyout would have been to like help you allow, uh, keep Tyler Toffoli, like the Brandon Sutter buyout, the club has been deeply reluctant to go into those sorts of things. So will that rule again? Or is the space that the club is going to need to navigate here so tricky, so difficult, that they actually ultimately have to consider it? Really curious to see how that plays out. You know, I've, I've missed a small deadline, but a deadline nonetheless that I'm going to bring up real, real quick. June 1. June 1, you have to sign your drafted prospects by that date, or they become um, either unrestricted free agents or they go back into the draft. I only bring this up because the club went this route in poaching guys like Nils Amon and Philip Johansson, who went unsigned by their respective teams. There's a few recent first-rounders, uh, Jay O'Brien out of um, uh, Washington, for example, where teams have elected to take the comp picks and will let those guys hit unrestricted free agency. This isn't like a big deadline. There's no Canucks prospect that I'm like watching and being like, will they sign him? No, no one high leverage enough to have that discussion. But given the way that this management group has gone about mining talent from non-traditional uh, generally affordable talent pools, whether you're talking NCAA, whether you're talking Group 6 free agency, whether you're talking these this unsigned draft pick talent pool. Um, I, I bet they have a list. I bet Patrick Alvin has a list. I bet he has some thoughts. Club might have a couple targets. We saw Atu Ratu's brother, Aku Ratu, uh, signed just yesterday with the Arizona Coyotes, removing him from the list. I, I was sort of eyeing him as as one of the targets. There's a few guys, though. There's a few interesting guys I don't know if there's a Niels Amon quality player there, but be interesting to see if the Canucks go about using that again. From there, right, June 15 on. Um, well, sorry, we also have the Combine, I guess. Okay, that's the other one. Combine, June 4 to June 10. We'll get into that a little more once the once we know where the Canucks are picking. And then, you know, that's when that's when things really pick up. After the buyout window opens, things get really interesting. Now, We'll see how the Canucks approach the buyout window again. I'm not expecting them to necessarily use a buyout. I'm definitely not expecting them to use one out of the gate. I do sort of wonder. I can't escape the thinking that as I look through how tight to the cap Vancouver's position to be, as I look through this team's myriad needs, particularly third line center and, and certainly another top four defenseman, I can't sort of escape the sense that at some point the ability to just Poof, make cap space without needing to find a trade partner, without needing to pay a premium aside from cash and, and future cap space. Like the appeal of that is going to loom large, particularly if this is another flat cap offseason in terms of how teams are making deals, right? 
and on that sort of subject, which I think is a really important one, because, you know, I get a lot of notes from fans talking about things like, well, they'll move Tyler Myers. And it's like, okay, well, that's a $6 million cap hit. Guy has a $5 million signing bonus due to him. That signing bonus isn't due until late in the summer. And he's got a no trade clause or a limited no trade clause, which sort of restricts a deal with a, a third of the league. Uh, not an easy one to move. <laughs> it's not easy. But it's not impossible. And and especially it's not impossible in a world where trades are happening at, at sort of a less or a more lubricated clip than what we've typically seen or certainly what we saw last season. One of the crunchiest flat cap trade markets I can ever remember. We're, we're probably facing another year of flat cap, you know, scarce cap environment um, markets sort of dictating how the NHL offseason unfolds. But beyond that, we're probably looking at something that looks a little different. And that is going to change how things work a little bit. That is going to make term easier to move. It is going to create an environment where, like, Brandon Hagel no longer costs two firsts. Where, where Lafferty and McCabe, who are both signed beyond this season with heavy retention, um, don't net the Chicago Blackhawks necessarily a greater return than Patrick Kane. Right? That paradigm is probably going to shift. Tanner Janot might not be worth a full draft class anymore. <laughs> like, that paradigm's probably going to change, and we're going to see trade values more closely approximate actual player value as opposed to being based so significantly on the attractiveness of the contract that the player is attached to, and thank goodness. I don't know that that change happens this summer, but you could begin to see teams look ahead with a little bit more confidence, right? So where uncertainty reigns, teams will not want to take on long-term commitments. In a confident market where teams understand that there's a high probability that the cap is going to accelerate and maybe even accelerate significantly beyond this next season, then a Connor Garland-type deal with three years of term might be something you could move. Certainly, that would then help the club from a, a JT Miller trade value perspective in the event that they decide to kick down that door at long last and stop us from speculating on it one way or another. And, and surely we have to stop speculating on it one way or another once the NMC kicks in. At that point, it's just like, okay, Miller will tell us. <laughs> There's no purpose in continuing to wonder. So either way, that's coming to a head. So you come to the cup is awarded. The buyout window opens. It's a last resort. It's something that you wait for if you're watching the Vancouver Canucks closely and what to expect. You get through, you've got the draft, right? The draft's going to be big for this team. They have seven picks, only seven picks. It's not where you want to be considering where this team's performance level has been at over the past few years and this past season. But nonetheless, they at least have a, a full arsenal of draft picks, including an awful lot in the third and fourth rounds. It's a big test. It's a big test for a scouting group that I don't think has had a ton of success over the last few years. You look at how guys like Yoni Yermo have trended. Uh, Danila Klimovich is fine. Like, you know, I'm not criticizing him, but it, it, it's, he, he hasn't created value for himself the way that Atu Ratu did for the New York Islanders or a, a Logan Stankoven has for the Dallas Stars. Um, you know, Jonathan LeCaramacki finished the season strong, but 
Uh, I think there's still some concern on on how his game is trending after his draft plus one season. Elias Pettersson looks like a really good depth hit. I'm talking DPD, not the home run fifth overall pick that the Canucks made in 2017. So you get to the draft. Qualifying offer deadline. This is always an interesting one and sort of dovetails nicely with the Ethan Bear situation, which in particular is one to watch, right? I think Bear's probably penciled in right now at the top of Vancouver's depth chart on the right side. Like, obviously, Philip Hironik's going to be their second-best defenseman. But I would expect we see Bear Hughes. Like, I think Bear Hughes is is sort of what I'm expecting in my mind's eye to see when Rick Tockett trots out his D-pairs for the first day of training camp, you know, in September. I think we're going to see Bear Hughes. So that qualifying offer is, is an interesting one, particularly given that he's got Arbright's. Um, you know, and then, and then we'll see, like, there's some guys, they probably won't qualify. Carson Focht would be, would be high on my list. Jet Wu's going to get a qualifying offer and good for him. Uh, a little bit of a surprise there, but you know, Hoaglander, Bear, Hirose, those are sort of the main guys that we're watching there. And then you get through and, and I mean, pretty quick, we're going to have the market open and free agency upon us. And, you know, as we get into June, I think the big question lingering over everything, what can the Canucks move? What money can they move? This front office has been talking about cap prudence since they took over. And aside from the Hamannick deal, they haven't really found good ways to shed it, right? Like the Jason Dickinson for a second and you and you get Riley Stillman back um, and then turn him into Josh Bloom. Like that's not a good trade, right? Like that's, we, we look back at that and think, boy, the Canucks look like they paid an awful lot to move Dickinson given what the Ottawa Senators had to pay for Nikita Zaitsev to move Nikita Zaitsev's like significantly worse contract, particularly given that Dickinson can still play and Zaitsev not so much. So, you know, fact is, is that this team has not been able to carve out the sort of cap space that they've been trying to, that they've wanted to be able to carve out and instead have added a ton of commitments. Now, now the rubber is going to meet the road, right? They've they've rolled their die in terms of telegraphing what the ambitions of this franchise are. Whatever they say, they're in it to make the playoffs next year. Clearly, you don't make the heroic deal if you're not, right? And yet, to do and improve in the ways this team is going to need to, right? Some moves are going to have to come first to set it up. And those moves could be pricey, depending on how the trade market shapes up this offseason. And I expect strongly that it's going to shape up in a crunchy manner. All right, we're going to break. We'll be back on the other side with Dave Nonis. You're listening to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Catch up on what happened in Vancouver sports with Halford and Bruff in the morning. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Canucks talk on Sportsnet 650. We're coming to you live, of course, from the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. And as usual, you can text in 650-650. That's the Dunbar Lumber text line. We've got Dave Nonis on the phone. We're not going to waste any more time. We're going to tap him in. And Dave, before 
I steer the conversation to the Stanley Cup playoffs, which I frankly cannot get enough of, and I'm deeply upset that there's only one game on the schedule tonight. I, I just want to ask you, because the Abbotsford Canucks play tonight out at the Abbotsford Center, uh, Calgary Wranglers, they're, they're facing elimination. W- what's the impact that playoff success at the American League level can have down the line for an NHL team? Oh, I think it has a, a lot of impact. I mean, mm. you want your players used to playing into May. Uh, you know, it becomes a habit for people. So you, you want them to be used to getting into the postseason. And once they're there, you, you, you hopefully they can last a round or two at, at the very least. And they get used to that. It be, again, it becomes habitual. Um, so, you know, it was always important for us, uh, any team I've been with, to have a quality American League team. Not at the expense of, of – uh, the young player is not playing, but adding enough uh, depth and veterans in there so that those young players could play alongside them and then get some postseason success and get a feel for it. So I think it's it's very important in the development process. You know, good playoff players, regardless of what level they're at, you know, usually that's a good sign for what's to come when they move up. So uh, I think it's uh, it, it's something that bodes well for for Vancouver. Are there types of American League teams where you can read more into their playoff success than others? Like, I'm thinking about Tampa Bay, and we all remember Norfolk, like, didn't lose a game for three months under John Cooper down there. Uh, and, and a lot of those players, whether it's Pilat or, or Tyler Johnson or what have you, ended up being uh, support pieces or, or con- meaningful contributors on the teams that have emerged and dominated uh, three years' worth of the last four Stanley Cup playoffs. Um, versus sort of more veteran-heavy teams? Like, are, are, is there a type of American League roster that when they go deep in the playoffs, it sort of means more? Yeah, no question. You know, I was we were you know in that series with Norfolk, uh, with the Marlies, and they beat us the Calder Cup final. And, you know, that was a pretty rare team in that a lot of their best players were young players. They didn't really sprinkle a lot of veterans in with that group, they had such a solid uh, group of prospects. And as you said, they moved on, a large chunk of them moved on to the National Hockey League. Um, you know, I, I think that the way the game is now, you're, you're going to usually have to have some veterans in there. You want to have the right ones that are in it for the right reasons uh, that can help, again, bring the, the younger players along. But you can't have enough of them, or sorry, too many of them, so that they're actually impeding the progress of the young players where the young guys aren't playing the minutes that they need to play. They're not getting the power play or PK time or playing in the last minute. Those are the experiences you want the young players to have. So you need, to me, you need to have the right veterans there. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's a good balancing act. You know, when we had Manitoba as our farm team, the agreement was that they had so many veterans that they could put in the lineup but there was, you know, there was 14 players that are under Canuck contracts that had to play, you know, barring disciplinary reasons or, you know, extremely poor play. We weren't going to bump a young player out for a, for an older veteran. We, we wanted to find that right mix, and those teams were very successful. I'm curious too because the Manitoba Moose teams that you oversaw, Dave, had some. Players come out of not nowhere, but I, I mean, in addition to your Ryan Kessler type, you know, first round pick guy who developed a, down in Manitoba, there were, you know, your Kevin BX, a fifth round pick college free agent, m- maybe might not have gotten a contract if not for a, a fun night out at, at Earl's um, and uh, and 
Uh, Alex Burrows, obviously, an ECHL call-up, and, and we know what they went on to do and what roles they played uh, for the greatest team in Vancouver Canucks history. But as much as they marinated in the American League and leveled up, you know, you look back on it, and Bieksa was a 40-point guy as a, as a rookie in the American League. Like, Burrows was an, an NHL call-up option and a point-per-game player in the A, uh, two years, like his second season in, for your organization down with Manitoba. Can you tell pretty quickly, even if a guy's path to get to that point has been uh, non-traditional, circuitous, uh, that they've got it? Yeah, I mean, everyone develops it at a different rate, and that's one of the uh, mm. interesting parts of the American Hockey League. You know, there are some players that after uh, a year or even less have, have shown that they – don't belong there you know and going to go back to Toronto again we had Tyler Bozak in the minors and he just you know he, he was actually a better player at the NHL level than he was in the American League he just he, mm-hmm. he he just proved that he was ready to to move on now he was an older player he was a, a free agent but uh, to your point some guys take a you know a long time some guys can do it quickly the guys that you mentioned you know there was a few of them that that found a way to get up fairly quickly. Alex Edler, I put in that mix as well. Mike Brown, right? You know, they had to, they had to spend some time in the American League, but they got to the point where they looked like you could give them a game or two. Um, and and others like you know Alex Burrows, yeah, he he did have that success, but it took him a while to even make that first jump uh, from the East Coast League to becoming a you know a solid AHL player. But once he mm-hmm. got on that role and, and he started to to really understand what it took to become a, a player at, that would be considered at the next level, he started to take off. And that's what you want to see from in terms of development from the American League team. It's not just about winning hockey games. Yeah, you do you, you do want them in a winning environment. I, I believe that. I think, you know, a losing environment creates a, a, a mindset of losing for all the players. Um, but you want them in a situation where they're, they're going to see what it's, you know, what it's going to be like to get to the next level and what it's going to take to get to the next level. I think once they realize that, they improve quickly. Dave, I want to ask you one more before we turn to the playoffs. And just a salary cap question or uh, how is the salary cap and the probability that we're going to deal with one more flat cap uh, season next year uh, might impact the trade market. We saw how difficult it was for teams to make moves to shed salary last summer um, you know because of the flat cap environment we've been living in for the past few years we've seen you know guys like Brandon Hagel with super desirable contracts go for multiple firsts Uh, Jake McCabe and Sam Lafferty so long as the retention is right returned more than Patrick Kane (laughs) you know Tanner Janot is worth a, a an entire draft class now because of the cost control like is that going to shift as teams begin to look at the sort of cap lifting with a little bit more confidence here, or are we dealing with another challenging trade market, do you think, this upcoming summer? I think we're dealing with another challenging trade market. I think we're in for a, an interesting summer. You see what happens with teams that are going to have some cap issues, and there are going to be a number of them. When I mean, you just start to, to think of teams like Tampa, you know, they've already had to shed players mm. to try to you know, get under the cap. If this doesn't go up any higher – they're going to be in that same type of situation again. The Boston Bruins are looking at a at a cap hit, for, you know, for overages of I think it's north of four million dollars. <laughs> yeah. um, so there's a, there's a lot of teams that are going to be looking at things. You don't think about them right now, 
um, because it, you know, it's not top of mind. We're we're thinking of the the the, the draft, the lottery, the playoffs. Um, yep. But you start to to dial down and drill down on some of the of these teams' cap issues, and you'll see that there's a number of them. And you know, a first look might not look like a big cap issue when you look at the bottom line number. Then you look at the number of contracts that they have to sign. Uh, you know, the restricted free agents or even the UFAs, that that's a body that needs to be replaced. So when you start looking at it closer, there's going to be quite a few teams that are going to be in, you know, in, in cap trouble. Um, and it's going to be, a, I think, a summer where you might see some interesting moves. And then next year, I think we're looking at a very similar year than we had this year in terms of how you get deals done, uh, how you have to put you know players into deals to make them work. And then the reassessing the value of draft picks, because as you said, you know, putting one or two players or sorry, one or two draft picks in a deal that used to be an accomplishment. Now you're seeing like, you know, Tampa putting in five. Uh, (laughs) That's, that's something that, you know, I don't think is going to go away anytime soon, not till the cap starts to Mm. you know jump with some regularity and not just at a million dollars at a time. Dave, uh, on the draft lottery, because it is on Monday and there is a uh, Vancouver product at, at the apex of this 2023 class. Uh, when you were in Vancouver, uh, obviously it was a very different draft lottery setup, right? There was only like the top or the bottom five GMs invited to the annual draft lottery show. Like it, it, there wasn't as much movement. There wasn't as much possibility for movement. It was sort of a different setup than it became. But when you were in Toronto, uh, a little bit different. What What's the draft lottery like from the perspective of a manager? Um, sort of hoping, obviously, that your bingo balls come up. Yeah, you, you're gonna hope. You're gonna hope that that's gonna happen, but you have to prepare like it's not. And mm-hmm. you know that's the the way you, you look at it. You'd love to get that first overall pick, you know, particularly in a draft like this or the McDavid draft. Uh, so it, it, you want to you want to hope that you're going to be lucky enough to make that happen. But again, you're going to have to be prepared that if it doesn't, our list has to be as solid as it can be because right. maybe we're picking fourth, maybe we're picking sixth. You know, that's, that's how you have to look at it. The, the only time that, you know, that's not the only time, but the, the, the one time I was very interested in, in the, the lottery uh, was the Crosby draft. And you'll remember that mm-hmm. one is because every single team in the league had a chance to get that pick that year. Uh, it was coming off of the lockout, and so the, without having a, a season that's you know the season before to base the uh, the draft order on, everyone had a chance to win, and uh, so that was one of the most interesting ones. We were you know we were all sitting there waiting to see if maybe we were lucky enough that we would get a chance to pick Sidney Crosby, and that was uh, to me that was the most exciting lottery that we've ever had. Yeah, that would have been amazing. He would have scored even more big goals in Vancouver. Um, (laughs) with, uh, okay. I want to ask you this one. It's a playoff question, but, uh, you're the perfect guy to ask this of because you made the trade that brought the best goaltender in Vancouver Canucks franchise history to Canada's West coast. We're looking right now at a, at a playoff. You know, I I had my father-in-law who's a diehard Leafs fan. My my wife's from Niagara Falls text me and just like, you know, I don't think our goaltending is good enough. And I was like, look around. No one's goaltending is good enough except maybe Dallas, right? Like, there are no workhorse starters left. Uh, a lot of these guys are tandem guys or they're big money guys who haven't succeeded, frankly, over the last few years. Or they're sort of replacement guys playing really well. 
but this has not been a playoff where the elite goaltenders have necessarily had uh, the usual amount of success. Uh, is that an anomaly? Uh, is that a trend? Are we going to see more of this? And is it going to impact, do you think, how teams approach staffing uh, the blue paint going forward? Well, I still think you need, unless your team is is so good, I, I, I still mm. think you need high-end goaltending to win the Stanley Cup. You know, Maybe not uh, high-end goaltending to win a round or two, but to, to win, you're going to need that to occur. And it might be a situation, like you said, where a guy just catches lightning in a bottle for you know eight weeks and and finds himself in a situation where he you know he, he puts his game together and they can win. You know, Bobrovsky might be that guy after having you know several years of of struggle and despite the fact he's you know making ten million a year that he just didn't look like a starter anymore. You know, in the last four or five games that's changed. Now can that continue? Uh, you know, I I don't know, um, but I would agree with you that. You know the, the the one true starter left in, in in the playoffs, and to me the 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 best goaltender is in Dallas and Ottinger, and you know that that ultimately might be the difference in you know who comes out of the West and and who doesn't. One thing we saw in the first round too, and it's very much related because Ottinger was one of six goaltenders who'd played uh, fifty five or more games this past season, competing in the first round. Five lost, Ottinger still stands, right? So goalies, 55 games played or more, were one and five in the first round. Um, We've already changed the paradigm so significantly over the course of certainly my adult life in terms of how often workhorse starters, the marathon guys, the Luongo plays 65 sort of variety of goaltender. Like we've already basically gotten rid of that player type, but is there a chance we're going to sort of see goalie workloads reduced even further? Like, are we going to get to a point where 60 games is a, a, a rarity as opposed to something that seven or 10 guys do every year? Yeah, we might get to that point. Um, the, the one thing you need to do to get to that point is have more than one high-end goaltender. And, you know, there are some teams that just have to ride the, the one the one goalie because the, the backup isn't isn't good enough, quite frankly. But if you have that situation where you have two, or in Carolina's, uh, you know, their outlook, <laughs> yeah. they have they have three. <laughs> so I, I don't think that they, you know, Freddie Anderson is a good goaltender. He put together, you know, one really really good playoff in Anaheim. Um, but I don't think that they're that nervous if they have to go with Ranta. Uh, you know, so I, I I believe that if you have a goaltending tandem like that. Uh, then yeah, I think you'll see the the workload reduced as much as possible because as we've seen, um, injuries are a factor, and we're seeing more and more goaltenders that aren't capable of getting through a, a full season or even into the postseason because of injuries. So yeah, I, I think that would be something you would look at, and it would be it would be um, preferable if you could. It's finding these quality goaltenders, and um, you know that that is becoming more and more challenging. The one I heard, and I don't know what the actual stat is, but the you know the other thing is the number of homegrown, so to speak, goaltenders is really reducing. There's not very many right. Canadian starters in the you know in the league anymore. Um, so you're you know we're we're finding a lot of Europeans, you know, American-based goaltenders. Uh, you'd like to see that number increase in Canada and tr- try to get a few more quality goaltenders coming out of out of the Canadian leagues as well. Need to increase that number if you're going to be able to share the workload. 
No, and and if we're and if we're going to continue to dominate best on best, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't even know who Canada's projected starter would be if you know it was an Olympic year next year. But uh, I I would assume that that would be a talking point. Something you know the media folks like me would be talking about all tournament. Can this guy like can Carter Hart get it done against Shosturkin and Lundqvist and uh, you know a bevy of Americans? Maybe it's Ottinger, maybe it's Demko. Uh, maybe it's Hellebuck. I, I, it does feel like Canada's fallen a little bit behind here. It, it does, and I, I don't really know why. And I don't. I no one has told me why. I know people have asked that question, but I haven't heard a quality answer yet. Uh, you know, whether it's the number of kids that are playing the position, the coaching that we're doing, that you know what's going on in Europe that's you know, producing these goaltenders, uh, you know, at a higher rate. I don't know what the answer is, but. You're right. I think it would be a, a pretty interesting discussion right now if we were picking the Olympic goaltender. One thing that's been interesting to me in this playoffs, Dave, particularly after last season where we saw this Colorado Avalanche team, which, sure, they added Josh Manson at the deadline and they had Eric and Jack Johnson, but, you know, their top four defense, Byram, Taves, McCarr, uh, Gerard, even though he got hurt uh, as the playoffs went along, like, you know, their four best defensemen, the biggest of them was Devon Taves. <laughs> like it was, uh, it was a relatively mobile, smaller defense core that ended up winning the Stanley Cup. And, and obviously we know that the Florida Panthers had the regular season that they did with a similarly composed blue line, although they had Radko and, and Aaron Ekblad. Um, this year in the playoffs, it's felt sort of like a reversion to the mean. Like beef has ruled once again on the blue line in this playoffs does that surprise you are we going to see uh you know the the hulking defensive defender type do pretty well in free agency this summer you, you might i think you know, you know the, there is room in the game for the smaller defensemen you mentioned gerard in colorado um right. you know i believe though that they went and got a little bit bigger not a lot but a little bit bigger last year because of the failures yep. the year before when they thought they were too small um so i think it's a it's a it's a delicate balance. You still need size in the postseason to to box out, to play a bit of a heavier game. Uh, if you can, if you can mix that with skill, uh, which is the ultimate defenseman, uh, you know, the headman, uh, then you've you know then you've got something you can work with for a lot of minutes you know, throughout the course of the game. But I don't think it's going to uh, go back to where it was twenty twenty five years ago, where size was everything. I think size is still important. Uh, it's going to be important. I believe the team that wins the cup this year will have a fairly big defense, but now you're mixing in some of the skill along with it. Um, you know, to answer your question directly, do I think a, the defensive defenseman is going to be sought after? Yeah, I, I still do because, <laughs> you know, even though we're in an era where goals are, are coming a little bit more frequently, uh, keeping him out of your net is still the best way of winning a championship. So I think that, you're gonna, you will see some of the, you know, some of the guys who maybe didn't put up huge numbers offensively, you know, be well compensated as long as there's a good fit uh, with the teams they're going to. You have a good feel for the Pacific um, Division generally, and you know, all year there was this sense like, well, it's wide open in the Pacific. The Pacific is the weak division. You know, there, there's in, in Vancouver anyway. That's often cited as a source for optimism around the Vancouver Canucks and yet I'm watching this playoffs and I'm watching the Kraken play and I know they lost but I was really impressed with how the Los Angeles Kings played we know what Edmonton is we know what Vegas is uh we know what Calgary can be 
Um, is the Pacific Division getting something of a bum rap? Is this division as weak as people in this market seem to think? Or is there perhaps a little bit more of a core steel here in terms of the competition? It's not, it's not as weak as, as people are portraying at all. I mean, it's the same thing most of the way through the year. Uh, everyone just said that whoever comes out of the whoever comes out of the East is going to win, and and quite frankly, we're just going to give it to Boston because who in the West could beat them? Uh, <laughs> you know, as we got close, we got close to the playoffs. The, the Western teams really started to improve their play, and you know, I think you're looking at a couple of teams. You mentioned them that you know, West that could win. You know, Edmonton could win. You know, Seattle I think is is going to have a tough time. Uh, possibly, you know, moving on, but still a quality, mm-hmm. quality team that I think will push that series to seven. You know, L.A., as you said, that's a team that's on the rise and I think is very well managed. Uh, they've done a really good job of development. So, no, I, I don't think that, that it's a pushover at all. And, and it's the way things go. You, you look at a, at, a, at a snapshot of a season and you think that it's uh, going to extrapolate out for the whole year, and it, and it doesn't. That's why we have to play all the games. That's why we have to get through all the postseason to see who the you know who the best team is and which conference you know they, that team came from. But there's some quality teams that you just mentioned that, that I think uh, will make will make that division competitive. It's not going to be easy to make the playoffs next year at all. I think it's going to be a dogfight. No question. Hey Dave, thanks for accommodating us and coming on half an hour earlier today. Always enjoy your insights in these chats. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Have a good weekend. You as well. That's Dave Nonis, former Canucks and Toronto Maple Leafs general manager, sharing his insight on the trade market, the importance of AHL playoff success, and, of course, some trends that we have seen so far in the Stanley Cup playoffs. All right, we'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll do a full hour with Dmitry Filipovich. We'll take some questions then, so keep texting them into the Dunbar Lumber text line. We'll be back after the break. You're listening to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650.